Fast food dominates the food desert, and one franchise stands out and cozies up to the Black community with burgers, fries, and some of your favorite jingles. The book, the franchise, the golden arches in Black America, the author, Marsha Chadlin. And you're listening to Lit Society. I'm Let's loving it. Let's get, get lit. lit. <laughs> <laughs> Society, a podcast about books and drama. Mm-hmm. Today, we're going to take time out for Society Says. And this is where we share your comments with the rest of our Lit Society. Kari, is there a comment you want to share with our readers today? There is. This comes from Spotify and it's for our shoe dog, a memoir by the creator of Nike Film Night episode. Um, they say, this is from our uh, listener, DT. They say, I enjoy all the Lit Society podcasts. I'm a real fan from London. And would, would the Lit Society like to review the Change. It's a fantastic book by Kirsten Miller. Well, thank you, DT, for listening all the way from London Town from the Big Smoke. And yeah, we might take a look at that book. We do need to fill up our schedule through the rest of the year. So I'll check it out. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for those comments. Alexis, what about you? Is there a comment you found particularly lit this week? I did. I did. I found a a comment from Apple Podcasts, and this is from PA Viewer, and that they titled it Love. It says, I was so excited for the third season to start. The ladies never disappoint. It's very refreshing to hear them discuss the books and the themes. I feel like I'm in a room with friends when I'm listening. I especially love the side comments because most of the time I'm thinking the same thing. <laughs> and when I'm not thinking the same thing, I learn a new perspective. I love Thank that. You, well PA wow, viewer. that's so kind. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> We appreciate your comments as always, readers. And remember to have your comments shared. Message us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, uh, and even Spotify because we love when you leave them there. Kari, yes. what can you share with us about this week's author and some context for the book? Sure, yeah. So born in Chicago. Woo! Shout out, shout out! Shout out. For real. <laughs> we see you. Uh, Marcia Chatlin <laughs> is an American academic and historian who serves as the Penn Presidential Compact Professor of Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. She graduated from the University of Missouri in 2001 with a degree in journalism and religious studies. She then worked as the resident scholar at the Harry Ash Truman Scholarship Foundation. She's received her AM and PhD in American Civilization from Brown, graduating in 2008 mm. and was awarded University of California, Santa Barbara. Barbara's Black Studies Dissertation Fellowship. She's worked as the Reach of Excellence Assistant Professor of Honors in African-American Studies at the University of Oklahoma's Honors College um, before becoming a Provost Distinguished Associate Professor of History in African-American Studies at Georgetown University. 
Some of us may be familiar with hashtag Ferguson syllabus. In 2014, uh, following the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, Chatlin mobilized other scholars on Twitter to talk about what was happening in Ferguson with their students and contribute to a crowdsourced reading list. The result mm. became known as the hashtag Ferguson syllabus. Its success has led to other crowdsourced syllabi to respond to national tragedies. And in 2016, mm. the Chronicle of Higher Education named Chatlin a top influencer and academic in recognition of the success of hashtag Ferguson syllabus. In 2001, uh, Marcia was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for History for her book franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America, which we're reading today. Uh, she's also won, uh, won a James Beard Award for her book, okay. which is pretty huge. Yeah, I thought James Beard was food. Well, it's culinary arts, right? And so mm -hmm. this book definitely fits well into that program, into that, that makes um, sense. honor. Yeah. Yep. I get it. That gets, I get that. Thank you, Kari, for sharing that uh, detailed information about our author. We appreciate that. Mm -hmm. um, why don't you give us a brief synopsis before we take our deep dive then? From Herman Petty to LaVon Hawkins, Franchise tells the hidden history of the intertwined relationship between fast food and civil rights. Alexis, who do you think would enjoy reading Franchise? So I think if you enjoy uh, nonfiction history, um, you would enjoy reading this book. And the first book that came to my mind was books we covered by Isabel Wilkerson, um, particularly Cast. Kari, can you tell us why you chose this book? Sure. Um, because of all of the uh, attention it's been receiving in the culinary world, I wanted to check it out. We often hear about Super Size Me um, and the book that um, that came that was published before that movie. Uh, mm -hmm. But we never really talk about fast food in relation to black progress or um, the black journey, black American journey in America. Uh, so I thought this was a different point of view, a different perspective. And I was interested to see uh, what this historian dug up from the archives of our country. Uh, so, yeah, that's why I chose it. OK, well, thank you for sharing this. Uh, are you ready to take a spoiler filled deep dive into franchise? I am. So we're going to start with the prologue and we begin in Ferguson. Uh, McDonald's at 9131 West Florissant best symbolized the interplay between racial justice and the marketplace in America. It's where um, protesters would get milk for the um, injuries to their faces and eyes. It's where news media would meet. It became like a press pit where um, the news could uh, work um, and it became a community anchor. But how fast food has allegedly contributed to unhealthy children and adults is really what's talked about most today. And often the blame is placed on parents. Um, if your children are overweight, then you should feed them better and take more time to cook at home. However, economic disparity leads to health disparity in America in general has a weight problem. Black Americans are more statistically vulnerable, though, to this phenomena. So um, the start of franchises in America is often a storied one. If you're familiar with uh, the founder starring Michael Keaton, um, that <laughs> tells a type of view of how McDonald's began. Um, is that a movie? 
Yes, 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 oh, okay. with Michael Keaton. So, mm-hmm. and the um, the franchise really began as a dissemination of a common food, the burger. People were really skeptical about burgers, as we probably should be today. They was like, "You mixing <laughs> meat, cutting it up," and really, this is food that was once given to livestock. But now, with the advent of processing food processing, you could make a tasty burger for human consumption. Um, and then Coca Cola capitalism began, and that's where Coca Cola would basically franchise their brand to certain restauranteurs um, so that they could sell the product throughout the nation without the liabilities because franchise owners really carry most of those uh, liabilities, excuse me. And what they get in return is this celebrated name or this uh, well-liked product. So then we also have White Castle, which was named after what, Alexis? I don't remember. That's right. The water tower here in our city, Chicago. Um, <laughs> White Castle became famous for sliders. If Alexis, if you talk to the older people, we know what they think about White Castle. They love White Castle. Mm-hmm. Absolutely love it. It's disgusting. I saw a recipe for White Castle and it I included baby that. food. However, <gasps> I, th- I hear that back in the day, it was the bee's knees. You hear me? Also, A&W. I don't believe which I saw you, A&W okay. the other day. I was so confused. I don't believe you, but okay. I know, I know. <laughs> um, Wendy's, which we know um, was started by a founder who named the restaurant after his daughter or granddaughter. I can't remember. Um, so all of these preceded McDonald's, but McDonald's is unmatched in the fast food world. It grosses more than most countries in a single second. I made that up, but just telling you, it's like really successful. You know that already. Wow. White Americans who benefited from their whiteness started the franchises um, and and disseminated them throughout the country. And McDonald's became the standout child. Um, But an economic path to freedom started to be proselytized um, throughout Uh, the minority communities um, and civil rights and black capitalism started going hand in hand. Uh, The first black McDonald's franchise owner, it was Herman Petty. We'll talk about him a little more later. Um, Then there was the formation of black McDonald's owners groups. I remember, I think Magic Johnson owning a few McDonald's or maybe that was Wendy's. Anyway, uh, celebrities started getting involved long before Johnson, but celebrities started getting involved um, owning their own franchises, which became very successful. Uh, and then there became clashes between McDonald's and the communities in which they reside, because you're getting all this money from the community for the product that you serve and the communities um, think that you should actually give something back for their overall benefit. So let's get into it. Part one. From sit-in to drive-through. Now that I did not make up, that is from the book. I thought it very good. Um, So Marcia takes us to, oh, (laughs) Marsha. She's not Hispanic. So Marsha takes us to San Bernardino McDonald's on Route 66, uh, which I don't live too far from. Uh, Not San Bernardino, but Route 66. 66. (laughs) Can you tell us about Route 66, Alexis? It's a road that is to take us through the country from Chicago area to California, right? Yeah. Before we had interstates, this was the main road that took you from the eastern part of the Midwest to California, as Alexis said. Um, it's there are songs about it. 
people really celebrated it. Some portions of it have been preserved as historic landmarks. Um, but in San Bernardino on Route 66, there is something very unique. It is the first official McDonald's. Now, if you live in Chicago, you like, uh-uh, because the first McDonald's in, <laughs> is in displays <laughs> where Burger University used to be. Well, you're technically right, but you're absolutely wrong because the first McDonald's was started by two brothers who got out businessed uh, by Cock. What's his name? Cock or Croc? Croc. <laughs> okay. Oh, like a load of. So Croc. Yeah, Croc. <laughs> Out business them out their own business. It's a very interesting story. Um, and it, it's a great analogy for capitalism in general. But anyway, so the first actual McDonald's, which was started by the, the McDonald's family, um, is actually in San Bernardino. Inside, there's no mention in its museum. So it's now officially a museum because it's not allowed to have the McDonald's name, even though that's legally their name is wild. So it's a museum. It doesn't mention, though, the way that Black America has boistered the brand um, and how closely the two have been linked throughout history. The painful past is harder to digest. That's why Richard and Maurice McDonald could focus on their future success in a society built on Jim Crow when McDonald's was first founded. White families were free to buy cars and cars contributed a lot to the growth of fast food. Um, they could also buy homes, of course, and drive to restaurants on the fast food scene and return home with full bellies. Uh, Ray Kroc saw an opportunity in this and he opened an independent McDonald's one block away from the original, which again was not allowed to have the name McDonald's after uh, Ray Kroc bought the brand. So it took over the brand. So um, at this time, also black Chicagoans were reading about McDonald's in the Defender, which uh, was a publication that is just so intrinsic to the city, which is now um, defunct as are many publications, not the city, but the publication is defunct. It was um, a widely published uh, newspaper detailing black news, news that affected the black community. So black Americans would read about McDonald's in the Defender and um, made strides as managers within the chain. So black people began uh, managing different stores and earning a living that way. In a country eager to differentiate itself from communist foes, remember there are a lot of wars going on and we're saying we're the leader of the free world, the segregated restaurants along major roads, including Route 66, were a cause of embarrassment. So... <laughs> um, she she um, tells the story of a diplomat from Sierra Leone, I believe, who visited the States and was denied service. Like, he right. don't know nothing about this. He's like, excuse me. And sometimes um, foreign diplomats from uh, black nations would come to the States and have to have a phone call. Like in order to receive service, we have to call up their connections here who made it clear. Yeah. No, they're not black. They're African. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then. Yeah. The people are like, okay, I guess I'll serve you then, <laughs> which is just, that's how foolish uh, racism foolishness, is. Foolishness, anyway. plum foolishness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this began to be a cause of embarrassment for the nation as it was publicized that we are very, um, one thing in public, another thing at home and quote unquote private. So um, many activists who sat in in sit-ins um, and protested in restaurants were protesting in restaurants that no longer exist, such as Woolworth. There's no record of Kroc addressing the sit-in movement. He stayed out of civil rights. Um, Guess what though? 
What? There is a Woolworth in South Africa. And it in is South booming. Africa, you went to Woolworths? I went to Woolworth. <laughs> yes. Big deal. Okay. Yeah. That is so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if someone was just named Woolworth and opened it or if it's tied to the original brand. And they're yeah. thriving in South Africa. Y'all know Alexis. She's not working right now because she's decided to be a woman of leisure and travel. So she's just got back from South Africa. Yeah. Anyway, she wanted us to know that to remind uh, us. Thank you, listen, Alexis. No. Back to the show. <laughs> so um, black patrons wanted fair service, right? They didn't want to wait for white, especially white children to be served before them. It's weird. They didn't want to um, enter the rear of a McDonald's to place their order or be regulated to separate windows, which yeah. was also occurring in some locations. Um, in spring of 1963 in Greensboro, North Carolina, a group of college activists turned their attention to the city, to the city's McDonald's. They mobilized at the McDonald's drive-in and were met by violent mobs. Um, the franchisee relented days after the first protest to avoid bad press. And while events were occurring in North Carolina, Black Americans in Chicago were in discussions to ensure McDonald's would hire and promote them in addition to serving them. And like As you McDonald's, said, Crack didn't get involved in any of this. Uh, not out, not publicly. This. He yeah. wouldn't make a comment or take a stand, but he was definitely um, part of upper level negotiations of and course, changes in policy. Course. Yeah. Yeah. So while events uh, were changing throughout the organization, McDonald's policies were changing. Some Southern franchisees were not changing. They was like, y'all do that up north. But down here, we fly Confederate flags and we serve blacks in the alley. So, <laughs> yeah. so protests there uh, continue physical abuse, sometimes with concern for their lives. Um, mostly students uh, led these uh, rallies and demonstrations to ensure that they would be uh, given proper and fair service as much as possible in the Jim Crow South. As the D Justice Department, though, began tearing down the planks of Jim Crow, owners of restaurants got creative, offering separate menus for black and white customers. White customers could pay less. Black customers had to pay more. Uh, white customers had a full menu. Blacks were re relegated to a small, expensive menu in some cases. So um, Martin Luther King. so dumb. <laughs> Can I just dumb? But they had to appease their racism. That was their <sighs> job. So um, King spoke about the power of the black dollar in his final speech. He was assassinated the next day and the riots began. It's of note that now King is kind of repackaged as a flaming capitalist, but that was not necessarily his view. Uh, he was just saying how together black Americans have more money than many countries. And if we pull that money together, if we control where we spend it, we can get real change made in our home. Some white franchisees fled while the riots began and wanted out of their contracts. But McDonald leaders had no doubt that McDonald's would survive. And so they bought a lot of those contracts back from the franchisees. Enter Herman Petty. So McDonald's was enthusiastic to install a black owner. It would look good for the brand, but they wanted to choose the right black. <laughs> There's so always a Chicago right black, isn't there? 
<laughs> yeah, they was very W.E.B. Du Bois about it. So Chicago's Herman Petty was seen as a bridge between white and black businessmen able to communicate with both. He opened the McDonald's at 65th and Stony Island in 1968. He had to win against gangs and angry investors, but he did. He led efforts to bring women into the workforce. And by the end of his first year, his profits grew by 75%. This was in keeping with an exciting trend for McDonald's. That trend? Black McDonald's stores grossed more profit than white stores. What contributed to this, Alexis? Is it just the flood of wealth through the Black communities that we could just throw at fast food? No, certainly not. I, I, if I remember correctly, it was the um, the very low cost of the food as well as um, hard answer for me. I can't answer it. No, it's Go OK. Ahead. So also um, the fact that if you work in two or three jobs, you might not have time to cook. Time. That's money and so, time. Mm-hmm. Get you every time. Yeah. So uh, black people ate more McDonald's and the black franchisee owners were bringing in millions. Um, Studies, however, show that these owners were more vulnerable to pressure brought on by competition, uh, legal pressure, illegal pressure, uh, wanting them to close or to fold. So McDonald's made strides to educate and equip its black franchisee owners, um, franchise owners, excuse me, with tools for success. This included the Black Store Task force. Um, Direction was given to make Ronald McDonald more appealing to black children. (laughs) That red hair? No. We want it dark brown and we want to pick in it. You see? So some of these changes are cosmetic, but others possibly were made in good faith and spearheaded by black leaders within the community. A Southside Chicago Hamburger University was opened um, that paralleled, I think, the one in Des Plaines at the time uh, so that black owners didn't have to travel to dangerous white neighborhoods. Um, Croc saw these efforts as beneficial to his bottom line, and he supported them. In 1972, National Black McDonald's Operators Association was formed. That's the NBMOA, which exists today. And as long as it was um, as long as it was like a section to Midwest owners only, it was seen as a bonus by McDonald's executives. Yeah, go ahead and form your own little community so you can talk about problems that affect you specifically and you can have more successful McDonald's stores. See, that's what you call chess, not checkers. <laughs> they might go home to their sheets and they burning crosses. But when they in that boardroom for McDonald's, they're going to make sure the blacks get what they need so that the bottom line is uh, reached Money. Allegedly. I don't know. I'm just saying stuff. Money. So (laughs) it's money. So uh, black capitalism was seen as the new freedom papers. You want to be free? Be rich. Ooh, you can already kind of see how this ain't the promised land. (laughs) Materialism (laughs) equals happiness. Where that's at? Where they say that at? Who said that? Who said that? (laughs) So... (laughs) Nixon. That's my favorite expression. <laughs> What'd you say? Nixon is your favorite person. Hey, listeners, you heard it here first. <laughs> Alexis loves Nixon. Y'all already know she a classist. Let's move on. So Nixon was president in the early 70s, right? And he had a complex and conflicting view of blacks, of race, of civil rights. 
but he supported black capitalism 1000% and paved the way for black ownership and financial control as long as it didn't compete with white businesses or white economics. So y'all stay over there and have fun. Yes. Right. Because as long as you can uh, build your own wealth, if you will, if we can help you build your own wealth, then you stay over there. You won't bother us and we can have what we want over on our side. You stay over there. And Alexis and I are not trying to um, persuade you, listener, to believe or not believe in anything on this show. OK, however, this idea that black capitalism is the way to financial freedom and overall happiness for the black community is not an outdated idea. In fact, it is pushed by a lot of the rappers you love. However, these cities at the time we're back in the 70s were geared or these efforts were geared towards cities, excuse me, where the riots was happening. So, oh, I remember hearing that no country who has a McDonald's has ever went to war with the United States. And that's just a really nice way to package actually broader and more complex idea. But that does seem to be the idea that was pushed here. You can curtail riots and civil unrest by giving them folks a McDonald's and allowing them to franchise it. So um, capitalism, capitalism then was seen as a tool for control and civility. Paying more for lower quality goods and services was the rule of the day and business districts collapsed under white flight. So there are a lot of things going on in black communities as white people fled because black people were moving in. If you don't know about that, go ahead and read Michelle Obama's book because it's kind of funny. Uh, (laughs) If you know anything about Chicago South Shore neighborhood, it's right up on the lake. It's a lot of beauty over there, a lot of old bungalow homes. But um, Michelle Obama and them family moved on in. Not Michelle Obama. What's her last name? Is it? Oh, I don't remember. Robinson. Sure. Michelle Robinson family moved on in. Some people actually took their homes from the foundation and moved the whole (laughs) building. (laughs) You would look outside, it would just be a hole. Just the Grand Canyon across the street. Now, when that happen? So that's white flight. It's funny, but it's not funny because those families also took with them their money, um, their means of um, contributing to, to the, the community cost of living in the neighborhood. And that actually brought down the cost of living in the neighborhood, of course, uh, as everyday people still bore the brunt of pov- poverty and labor inequity. No real change was taking place as these black franchisees were growing more prolific, I'll say, and earning personal wealth. Um, the communities weren't being served. Um, so black capitalism became less community motivated and more individualistic. Help yourself is the way to help the community. Um, and then the community's like, wait, that math ain't mathin'. And then the capitalist capitalism says, shut up. So <laughs> um, politicians use money. programs to put their cronies in power. It wasn't about uplifting the community. It was about getting in your friends uh, through the front door. But fast food was benefiting. It encouraged franchisees to take advantage of federal programs for start and growth. So even though the communities aren't necessarily benefiting from black capitalism, the individuals that were benefiting were educated on how to benefit further. Um, so you know, Cleveland, 1967. Uh, So the city's first black mayor, Carl B. Stokes, was elected and franchisees were growing rich, but black communities, again, were still poor. 
Ernest Hillard decided it was time for a black businessman to make progress. He began the process to become a franchisee that year, contacting Mayor Stokes office for help and arranging for meetings with McDonald's uh, regional franchise managers. He also took on an advisor named David Hill, which is such a character he is. So a fellow uh, religious leader, David Hill called himself Rabbi Hill of the House of Israel. Hill spread um, pro-Black ideologies many were attracted to. He spent some time in a facility for criminally insane people, but that did not stop him from being deemed the leader of this movement. Okay, he executed Santa Claus, by the way. This was one of his demonstrations. <laughs> listen, listen, I'm just going to say some things. Some people end up in certain industries, but all they really need is a theater to support them. (laughs) A lot of the actors and actresses, if you do not let them play in movies, could probably take over the world and ruin your life. You could you imagine Tom Cruise? I ain't gonna say no name. Let's say T. Cruise or Tom C. Be a leader of your community. (laughs) Oh my god. And he will win because he's so charismatic. Okay. So David Hill was like, look, y'all, this is what we're going to do. I'm Rabbi David Hill and we're going to kill Santa Claus in the middle of the street to show how capitalism is evil. Get your kids. (laughs) And they did. And he did it. Uh, He hung him by a tree. No one actually died. It was a show. He loved the theater. So Hillard and Hill, this is the duo now. The businessman and the black uh, rabbi uh, used one of Stokes meeting rooms. Stokes is the mayor, right? To sit with McDonald's um, executives. Hiller felt mistreated by the organization. His goal, again, was to own a franchise and he felt like he was being blocked unfairly. Um, So he wanted to address these concerns. The McDonald's side demanded that a list of supporting black businessmen be presented along with seed money. And Hillard and Hill claimed to already have such a list. One biographer claimed that Hill demanded McDonald's hand over the keys to all white owned McDonald's locations in the inner city. Again, Hill is like the theater. He going to put on the show. <laughs> Hillard is more like, I really just want to own a franchise and get to some of that black capitalism. Um, and, you know, Hill is like, no, I'm killing Santa Claus again. <laughs> so Hill is like, give me the keys to all the white owned franchisees in the area. And McDonald's was like, no. This was a negotiation strategy, Hill claims, with the aim to get their their true goal more quickly. So they overshot in order to get what they really wanted, which That's actually what you does. Do. I that mean, works. that ain't crazy. <laughs> That's not off at all. That is what you do. Reach for the stars. Yeah. You say something really wild so mm-hmm. that what you really want makes more sense to everyone in the room. That's true. That's how people do it. So, That's right. um, so however, a few hours later, Hillard was dead, dead. I had a dead. They went home Kari. from that meeting and Hillard um, went to the grave. So yeah, his killing could be tied to one thing only, the McDonald's deal. His wife was like, who killed you as he was dying? And he said, white people. So Hill decided that another Mm. white businessman had gone too far and this would not stand. So efforts were made to show McDonald's the power of the black dollar. McDonald's executives were taking notice. Stores were closing. Others were being sold to black owners from white owners. Um, Boycotts called to the light. Hill's questionable pass. So as the boycotts got more press, so did Hill's pass. Like, wasn't he in 
the um <laughs> the home for mentally challenged persons. Not mentally <laughs> that ain't what they said, but that's no. what they said. <laughs> and folks was like, "Yeah, but did you hear about how he killed Santa Claus? That man's a leader." <laughs> Insanity of it all. So, um, <clears throat> Hill had a response for everything. This man was media trained before media training was a thing. And if you said something to him, he had a response waiting for you. Um, so black workers weren't able to earn an income due to the protests and clothing, uh, closing something that McDonald's highlighted, like, look, your efforts are actually hurting your community because the people who work here aren't able to earn money for their families. Protesters expressed the desire to design their future on their terms, not under the hand of a white master. Not again. McDonald's did not want to deal with Hill and walked away from negotiations. They was like, you bringing this man to the table, we're out. But reconsidered as Black patrons sought alternatives. That's right, Mahalia Jackson's uh, fast food chicken line and other Black-owned businesses were popping up. And Black people was like, oh yeah, we'll support y'all. Y'all use seasoning. So they eventually, <laughs> McDonald's, allow organizations, not just individuals, to apply for a franchise. And this helped make it easier, not easy, but easier for black owned um, McDonald's, black franchise McDonald's, I should say. Hill requested that McDonald's contribute also to the communities that supported them. And he was one of the first to actually put this on the table. Uh, black people are pouring so much into your business. What are you doing for our communities? And you really hinder uh, our growth of our businesses because you already have the capital, you already have the backing and you come in ready to go. Uh, lock turnkey business. Um, it's harder for our mom and pops to get, you know, get going. So what can you do to pour into Help our us. communities? Mm -hmm. Um, this included, of course, financial support with donations and McDonald's walked away from that deal too. They was like, hell again. What did we tell y'all? We're not doing it. <laughs> so, yeah, they didn't really want to work with Hill. The organization Hill represented, Operation Black Unity or OBU, accepted his reluctant resignation among extortion accusations. So as the accusations about him got louder, he eventually did have to step down from these McDonald negotiations and um, from his own organization, OBU. The entire situation tested the volume of Black voices, though, and um, people recognize that, yeah, there is power there. In exchange for the protest to end, white franchise owners sold their businesses to black franchise owners and the organizations that represented black people. And although they seemed cold and uncaring during the boycott, after the protests ended, McDonald's was able to solidify its place as a community leader and supporter by supporting civil um, initiatives and organizations publicly. In an unprecedented move, Hill was found guilty of blackmail for the McDonald's negotiations and faced 45 years in prison before fleeing to Guyana. He was later found guilty of manslaughter in that South American country, by the way. Um, Hill and his supporters, however, were also uh, recognized for their efforts on behalf of the black community. So it wasn't all bad press for Hill. Okay, so McDonald's instituted diversity training after this, a move many thought would be divisive, but which proved beneficial for their team. We hear about diversity training a lot now. McDonald's really did spearhead 
that, it seems. They were one of the first major organizations to uh, use it within their organization. <laughs> organization. Okay. Um, black consultants were hired to educate the team further on the economic stage of Black America. In the end, it was also clear that the issue was not just about fast food operations, but if businesses like McDonald's would fairly represent the Black community. And now we get to the heart of the unrest. Uh, would McDonald's help the community gain the American dream of prosperity and happiness through financial gain? Uh, does McDonald's owe that to the community just because it's putting um, a lot of mom and pops and potential businesses out of business before they even begin? Do they not owe something something to the communities in which they uh, reside? Oregon, 1975. The Portland Panthers. Now, y'all, I had no idea a place like Oregon had a very organized and focused Black Panther Party movement. I don't know. I just didn't know because it's Oregon. It's not but, really talked about. That's why. And this is what she brings out in the book. So Portland Panthers. And then they got a cool name. They the Portland Panthers. So the Portland Panthers operated three medical centers and started a breakfast program for school kids. People wanted to hate it, but the results were undeniable. If a child is focused on his hunger, the Black Panthers would say he can't be focused on learning. These kids wouldn't be getting breakfast at home. Not all of them are poor, but most come from homes where the mother doesn't have time to get up and cook in the mornings. So white franchise owners were asked to support the breakfast program or face boycotts for not supporting the community. The Panthers also accused McDonald's of not hiring black leadership and for allowing their parking lots to be used for police, which attacked a lot of the Black Panthers members and um, black people. The protest lasted for one month. A local McDonald's was bombed and the Panthers were blamed by many. Although if you look back on records by federal agents uh, and based on history, you can't completely rule out the idea that perhaps the federal agency was behind the bombing so as to make the Black Panthers look bad. Like, I know that sounds wild, but you can't rule that out. Unlike mom and pop shops. McDonald's was not contributing skilled trades either, and they weren't adding generational wealth to communities. Gradually, the horn was being sounded throughout the nation. Also, McDonald's was contributing a lot of non-biodegradable. What's the word, Alexis? <laughs> Biodegradable. Non-biodegradable trash. <laughs> That's not funny. And they would only contribute to community outreach services arbitrarily. Like sometimes a franchise owner would contribute. Sometimes they might never contribute. So Philadelphia um, had a proud multicultural neighborhood at this time um, and they didn't want a franchise. They they didn't want a McDonald's. And it wasn't because they wanted to buy into the McDonald's brand and McDonald's wasn't letting them, as was the case previously with other um, clashes between McDonald's and communities. In this case, the community was like, no, we we have businesses that we've started here. We have, again, a multicultural neighborhood in Philadelphia. This is so rare. We want to preserve this special sauce that we got going on right here. And McDonald's would ruin that. So the community lost. McDonald's eventually did take over um, with the wink of the courts. Um, so this is showing how 
uh, communities did try to push back, but ultimately failed because how can you legally stop a business from prospering in a society built on capitalism? That is actually anti-American. You can't do that <laughs> in real life. So, yeah, go sit down. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Marsha brings up Dairy Queen, which ultimately failed in black communities. And that was seen as a sign that black people don't deserve nice things. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so a white franchise owner might open a Dairy Queen in a black community and with the best intentions, um, but be treated poorly or um, circumstances occur where that business has to close. And it's seen as like, look, it's the black people fault. They don't deserve Dairy Queen. Um, there was a Sisters Cleveland experiment and failure. Can you tell us about that? So the sisters, the sisters. It reminded restaurant. me of yellow face. <laughs> Like, why oh, they name yeah. the restaurant Sisters? <clears throat> it was not black. And owned. the logic behind that was weird because you mm-hmm. eat your um, sister's chicken on the porch. It was a chicken restaurant, right? Chicken sandwich or chicken? This was before the chicken sandwich. A chicken restaurant. <laughs> and people thought it was. The great chicken sandwich war of 2020. <laughs> this was before that. So they was just eating chicken. Yeah, they thought it was black owned, but it wasn't. It wasn't black owned at all. And it was making waves in the community. Yeah. Yeah. That failed too. Though. Yeah. Um, then Soul of a Nation and Black History Month. Now, Soul of a Nation um, is when Black uh, McDonald's reminds you that it's good to be Black because that's what you need from McDonald's. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> this was a time, I think, in the 70s when Black history information wasn't easy to find like it is today. OK, so franchise owners threw their money to ads like they so this is how it works right a franchise owner would have to throw their money into the marketing pool mcdonald's then disseminates that money throughout their franchises uh with ads so some ads so a black franchise owner would pay money into this marketing pool but those ads might not show to his customers they might not be on black radio stations they may not be on black shows that you know black people watch so really he's just paying money to promote white White franchise mcdonald's franchises Mm -hmm. and that didn't seem fair so mcdonald's was like okay we hear you we see you let's do black stuff so um, <laughs> they started sponsoring a du- double Dutch team. We're all familiar with the uh, McDonald's All-American team. Um, some black franchisees tried to teach math and other skills to staff. Like you may not work here forever, but as long as you work here, you're going to pick up a trait because uh, high school dropout rates were high for blacks and whites at the time. So higher for blacks. So some franchise owners wanted to do their part, one could say. In 1974, there was a chemical leak in a Chicago neighborhood and authorities took a long time to alert the neighborhood so that they could flee. Oh, yeah. Uh, go ahead, Alexis. What are you trying to know? I'm trying to think, uh, think about what this was. And I remember the woman saying, if we had known, we could have got out of there. Yeah, no one told them in a timely fashion. Uh, They were moved from facility to facility once they did get out. Um, And at this time, Black franchise owners of McDonald's were seen as heroes because they provided a lot of them free food to these evacuees, I guess you could say, um, in their city. 
And there's an interesting quote here by Marsha. She says, when fast food chain owners could be relied on more than community leaders, such as school administrators or police officers, then the lines between where leadership and power rested in a city could become so blurred that a fast food restaurant could begin to look like a solution instead of a symptom. Mm. Mm. That deep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hey, Calvin, y'all remember, y'all won't remember, <laughs> but you probably saw parodies of an ad McDonald's ran where a local boy named Calvin starts off as little thuggy. He playing basketball in the street. Ooh, scary. But as the day goes on, he becomes more upstanding until he finally ends at uh, his job at McDonald's. And he's like, hello, can I take your order? And everybody like, that's Calvin. Calvin got a job. Um, so as like this, uh, some of us see them as patronizing. A lot of people saw them that way uh, at the time of their airing. <laughs> um, but this show, the great lengths McDonald's was taking to be mm, baked into black culture. They would they would run ads in black communities um, to appease the black franchise owners. But some of those ads was be, would be like. Allegedly, um, come to McDonald's where the getting good, eating good, getting, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> but that's not allegedly. <laughs> I know. I just don't want no problems. Think no, about that, that. Think about that. <laughs> the commercial with the uh, grandma and they <laughs> with the gospel Y'all music get ready in the for background. Church. And they so tired. They like, Grandmama, we don't want to go to church today. We love Jesus. We don't want to go to church. And she said, I'll get you McDonald's, baby. And they like, yay, church. So anyway, um, somebody McDonald's- said, Grandma would not want to eat McDonald's before church. Why is this happening? Grandma is taking them to McDonald's. I don't know. You no. know what? Grandma, we don't go in there and make some biscuits. Stop playing. <laughs> we let you live here. Uh, so anyway. <laughs> so uh, McDonald's also began uh, repackaging. Not that they weren't the only ones by a long shot. Uh, Martin Luther King's message as a capitalist message. Get yours. Get McDonald's. Um, the King holiday was adopted nationally and McDonald's had a lot to do to promote that holiday. Um, they had a, a lot going on with that. So uh, they also made negotiations with the NAACP um, behind closed doors and also publicly to finance different black efforts. 1992, L.A. What's going on at this time, Alexis? Riots. That's right. So um this uprising sparked by a Korean owner, um, supermarket owner killing a young girl and also by the Rodney King um, situation. McDonald's proudly claimed that their businesses survived the riots because they are owned and operated by black people. Being black owned was a survival strategy and black people were backing McDonald's. We we go together real bad. <laughs> That's McDonald's <laughs> talking about black people but they weren't necessarily like wrong like some people for example if it's known throughout the community that a black franchise owner owns this mcdonald's maybe they wouldn't be looted okay and maybe growing up with this idea that mcdonald's is your friend you know you get happy meals here 
You love it here. That has helped McDonald's in many more ways than one. Yeah. When you have an when you have an involved um, black franchisee in the community, giving back in large ways. Yeah. You've come to know McDonald's as McDonald's as a friend. And therefore, you would try to protect your community um, franchise in that way. It makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Um And I mean, it really is genius to market to children first and then mature that marketing as they grow up. So there's a campaign for you, no matter your age, there's a McDonald's campaign for you. And that helps you grow up with the brand. You see the brand as more than a brand. It becomes, as Alexis said, a friend or family. And so that has worked in McDonald's favor many times. Chicken George. I wish I knew about Chicken George and could eat there because it sounds good, right? Season chicken. Y'all, let's pull our money. We're going to start a GoFund. Uh, uh, <sighs> is that a website? GoFund Go us. us. <laughs> <laughs> to get Chicken George back up and running. I so, want it. Chicken George. I want it. I want it. Mm-hmm. So Chicken George was a black owned fast food restaurant that boasted authenticity and flavor. People <laughs> would be like, Mm-mm, that don't even go together. Mayonnaise on chicken. Hard pass. Let's go to Chicken George because they put hot sauce on their chicken like normal people. So let's go to Chicken George. I want to go right now. Google Chicken George, y'all. It look good. So uh, eventually, though, they went bankrupt. Capital was needed, right? So this is the thing about um, Mm -hmm. composite success. I I just made that up. I don't know. But what I'm saying is once you get a head start, you keep that head start throughout the progress of your campaign. If you start early during favorable times, then when times get hard, you have all of that knowledge and capital that you raise during easy times. And so McDonald's was still coming out on top despite these other fast food restaurants popping up. Um, One famous name might be LaVon Hawkins. Uh, He started checkers in a lot of, not started, but franchise checkers in a lot of uh, low income communities. And he would doctor the menu to be more flavorful in a way where the entire organization would adapt his menu choices to their menu. Because y'all remember Checkers had good fries? Checkers don't Check, exist no more, I don't think. Checkers does exist. And I used to think they were black owned. I only reading this book did I know they were not. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people think it is. It, it wasn't. Um, I thought they all turned into um, payday loan stores. No, no, they still exist. They still exist. Well, they used to sell great burgers and fries and they sell seasoned fries that were amazing. Absolutely. Seasoning. Mm -hmm. Who knew? So, uh, LeVon Hawkins. Sure. It makes a difference. LeVon Hawkins was behind a lot of those openings and he was a franchisee, not an owner, but his businesses were marketed as black owned, fooling Alexis to this day. To this day. (laughs) (laughs) Hawkins has said in interviews that his first job was sweeping floors at his uncle's McDonald's. He became manager of the store and then went to work at KFC, working his way up to regional vice president. At one time, he did own like a hundred Pizza Hut locations. Uh, He fought Burger King over their promised contributions to the community. Uh, He settled with them. They settled with him. And Burger King settled with him for like $30 million. There was a point where he had made nearly a billion dollars or more than a billion dollars in um, settlements. (laughs) But he also had to pay out a lot of money due to legal um, issues. And after facing jail time for corruption and failing with many of his businesses, Hawkins blamed black people for his failure. We allow every dollar to leave our community. 
Mm -hmm. That was his thinking. So in the end, let's wrap put a bow on this. Our money in fast food has led to fewer choices and increased health issues. We got here because feeding on injustice and chaos, corporations have used capitalism to bind themselves to our families. Um, And that leaves us with less skilled jobs and more sodium and mystery meat. Um, And that's not just a black problem. That's a world issue. The end. Alexis, would you like to take a break? Let's do it. All right. And we're back. Alexis, what were your thoughts about Franchise? And would you recommend this book? So very interesting things in the book, but um, one of the things I kept coming back to, and I don't know why, but I was bored reading this book. I had to try really hard to read this book. I, I kept putting it down and I mean, I didn't read it physically, but I kept putting it down. There's some interesting information for sure. In the book, um, I I did learn some things, but I, for some reason I was just um, bored. I couldn't get into the book. It had several starts, incomplete starts in the event. So I, I wouldn't recommend it unless this is an interest for you. Uh, learning about franchising in Black America, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, but yeah, I was bored reading it. But it, it's, but it was interesting stuff in it. How about you, Kari? Would you recommend this book? And what is your final verdict? So I thought this book was so interesting in that we don't um, ask for entertainment from our history books, right? And this is essentially um, a nonfiction historic work. Um, it is putting together uh, the path of civil rights and the marriage between Black Americans and McDonald's in a way that I don't know has ever been done. It is, she is doing her research. She is cataloging. Um, she is making the notes. She is interviewing people to get this full story. And that's useful. You have to categorize your history or it will be forgotten. And I don't just mean Black history. I mean anyone. Um, you need those historians to detail how things occurred so that in the future, we can understand why things are happening now, right? Why, right. why certain events occur now. That is such a useful um, task, but it doesn't mean it will equal an entertaining work. And I think that's okay. What Isabel Wilkerson does really well is put in a story you can follow, um, a nonfiction of um, an avatar in her works. Mm. And so you see yourself in that person And you can follow their story and align yours to theirs as you're learning about the context around um, around their lives. So I think this book would have done well with an avatar, with someone we could have followed, uh, perhaps. um, I don't know, uh, perhaps the Detroit franchisee, uh, LeVon Hawkins, if more of his story could have been intertwined. So really, Ferguson serves as the catalyst for. This, this story to be told for right. all these facts to be thrown at you. Um, and as that's as Ferguson's story is so important, it's not um, there. It's not a character. It's a city right. and an event. So if we somehow were able to follow one person or one one family to learn how this 
um, change affected them, I think that would have been a more entertaining story. Nevertheless, this was really well done. Um, I love the fact that books can give you all of this information um, about a world that you didn't know you were interested in um, and that you knew nothing about. And so Marsha does this really well, but it's not entertaining to me either. Um, that's okay. And I would only recommend it to someone who was interested in knowing more about the culinary world as it pertains to fast food, America and the globe. Um, but if that doesn't interest you, then I don't think this book will serve you well. I think it needs to exist, but it might not be a book you need to read if you're not interested in food facts. Yeah, you could definitely use it um, for research, though. Yeah. And there are also no ups in this book. It doesn't owe you that, but it's a downer. <laughs> it is a downer. I mean, think about this as uh, corporations become more pro prolific throughout our country and um, mom and pop shops are becoming extinct in a lot of industries, mm -hmm. then um, skills and personal value and purpose is on the decline. Like people skills. are actually dying because of depression mm -hmm. from not feeling worth anything. Um, and that can be directly tied to the decline in family um, skilled trades and family businesses. So it's kind of dark, you know, well, that's heavy. Yeah, I, I can agree with you there. It is very heavy. It, towards the end, it talks about um, black capitalism now being black empowerment and mm -hmm. how that is the new expression, but it's still backed by the same thing. So you feel like it's hopeless. And a lot of this and who book, benefits in the end, right? A lot of this book felt hopeless. Like these people have no hope. They're looking for things to solve problems and answer uh, questions and improve their lives. And this book does not offer it. And you don't even see it in the offering because it's a repeat cycle of the very same thing. So I really get and Alexis that. is saying the book doesn't offer it. Um, I, if I can, I think you're saying that the corporations don't offer it and the book is telling right. that in detail, that right. fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. So it's kind of interesting if if black capitalism is your path to salvation, uh, rethink that. Yeah, <laughs> that path might not end where you had thought it would end. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. And, and that conversation about how um, finance is the way to freedom is not a dead one. People really believe in it. Uh, and that means that if you are not financially successful, you aren't free, I guess. <laughs> You know, what are you implying? Yeah. Capitalists. Yeah. So it, it, mm -hmm. it's, it's a handful. It's a lot in this book. Uh, it It is interesting. It is interesting. So, yeah. So, so just the conversation that sparked from this book. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's really great. Right. I love to talk yeah. about the conversation around this book and I'm glad we read it. Yeah. Even though we didn't enjoy being in the pages. Right. I'm glad we read it. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? Would I recommend it? <laughs> I guess so. Yes. I. So here we go. <laughs> I did not enjoy reading this book and I will wholeheartedly recommend it. Right. So I would, again, I'm standing by, I would recommend it to those who have an interest in that topic. Um, I'm going to say no. I'm going to say to everyone, do you have an interest in that topic? I don't. No, neither do I. <laughs> but look at this conversation. We're so interested in it. So no, everyone should read this. And you all should not enjoy it, but you should remember <laughs> the points within it. I mean, it's got some really um, valuable points in that the 
just because you own um, something doesn't mean you're going to be <laughs> have hope in your life. I just the book just felt hopeless as to the idea of black empowerment. The book just felt hopeless with the offerings of what black empowerment, which is black capitalism, um, offers you. It, and and she kind of wraps that up in a nice bow in her concluding chapter. Like it, what is what is it going to get you? And that's all I saw. And it's just like, and if the facts make you feel hopeless, it's not the facts' fault. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Don't blame the facts for being accurate. Yeah, <laughs> that was a tough one. That's a tough these one. are hard topics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are, mm-hmm. but they are very interesting. I mean. You know, the the picture, there was a picture that I saw of LeVon Hawkins and he looked like Jay-Z to me. Just a like who? fluffier Jay-Z. Jay-Z. OK, now Alexis is being specific. <laughs> I don't mind. Which being we don't specific. do on the show. Oh, we don't. I do. I, I don't know how to not be. So I don't know <laughs> yeah, yeah, girl, he look like Jay-Z. Sure do. He do. He look like a like fluffy a fluffier Jay-Z. Jay-Z. Mm-hmm. End quote. Alexis. <laughs> Meme it. <laughs> <laughs> just you know you gotta yes, stand girl. and you'll stop but this is fact this is how I felt and <laughs> that's that but anyway his story was really interesting I mean the stuff that came comes out about him and I actually remember the lawsuit about with him and the franchises that he was working oh, with do. that was all over the place and then the downfall because he then ended up going down with Kwame I can't, they mentioned Kwame in the book and I remember mm-hmm. that story as well. It's just, it's a lot in this book. Interesting. Interesting. Very interesting. Look, mm. Alexis is talking herself out of not recommending it. I'm not. Y'all seeing it in real time, <laughs> folks. I'm not. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Gary, what are we reading next week? No Longer at Ease by Chinua Achebe. Great. Which is great. This is the follow up to Things Fall Apart. Absolutely. Well, thank you for listening to Lit Society. We look forward to meeting up with you next week, Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Honoria and Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us and we love you too. Uh, you can also leave that comment on Spotify. If you've enjoyed what you just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit Lit Society pod.com for this um for show notes this month's book list and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter and until next time readers read something read something because i'm loving it okay. <laughs>